Hey there, friends, and welcome to episode 189 of Just the Zoo of Us. In this week's episode, I talked with biologist and host of Nat Geo Wild's TV series, Monster Fish, about the giants lurking in the waters of the world's rivers and lakes, freshwater megafish. Our guest told us all about how and why fish are able to reach massive sizes, what it's like to research and work alongside these enormous creatures in their own homes, and how we can help protect and conserve the natural habitats that we all rely on to thrive. So put on your snorkels and head down to the river. Just the Zoo of Us presents Freshwater Megafish with Zeb Hogan. Friends, this is Ellen Weatherford with Just the Zoo of Us, your favorite animal review podcast. And this week, I'm very excited to be bringing to you a new friend who you may have seen and heard before. Uh, this is Zeb Hogan. Say hi, Zeb. Hey. I am so excited to be talking to you. This is a little bit of like a fangirl moment because I think a lot of people, you know, that grew up on nature documentaries and grew up on nature shows and stuff, it's kind of like a lot of people's dream to do like the, you know, National Geographic nature documentary host, and you're like living that dream. Yeah, it's great to to be with you. I'm really excited to talk megafish today. Yes, but before we talk about our freshwater megafish friends, I would love to get to know you a little bit for folks listening at home. How did you get into the work that you do with these giant freshwater fish? I am from Arizona, and you might not think, you know, I've ended up spending my career studying the world's largest freshwater fish. But I grew up in Arizona. I went to school undergrad at the University of Arizona. And growing up in Arizona, I guess one way it makes sense is Arizona is a very hot. I lived outside of Phoenix. It was very hot. Uh, I was fascinated by the outdoors. I was fascinated by wildlife. And so spent my time growing up going hiking and camping anywhere where there was water. Because in Arizona, if there's water, there's life, there's, you know, you can take a break from the heat. And so I just grew up loving fresh water, exploring creeks, catching fish and frogs and all that kind of stuff. And then uh, as an undergrad at the University of Arizona, I was a ecology major. And my summer job was doing fish surveys in the tributaries, the, the small creeks that flow into the Colorado River inside of the Grand Canyon. And so we would hike 10 kilometers up each of these streams. And every 500 meters, we would ha- we had big nets and we would catch the fish and survey the fish, see what species were there, count them, and then walk up another 500 meters, do the same thing. And so uh, my summer job was working on freshwater fish, native fish in Arizona's rivers and streams, which was a absolutely amazing job. And that's sort of what got my professional interest started in working with fish. 
I could see that for sure. Cause like when I think Arizona as someone who's never been to Arizona, I think of like sprawling desert and big dusty plateaus and stuff. I don't think freshwater ecosystems when I think Arizona, but I'm sure that that kind of gives you a sense of like, if you're in a very dry and arid environment, then all of the life just kind of gets like packed into this like dense wetland area. Is that kind of how it goes? Yes. And you don't see like, Many people have been to the Grand Canyon, but most people experience the Grand Canyon. You go to the rim and you look over and you're impressed by this, the huge canyon that's in front of you. But if you hike down into the canyon, it's, it's an amazing place. So for example, just to give you a couple examples of the, the rivers that we worked in, the Priya River. So the Priya River flows across the Utah border down into the Colorado River just below Glen Canyon Dam. And most of the year, the Priya River, and I had never even, you know, growing up in Arizona, I had never really experienced this, but it, it flows like mud. It's a flowing mud river. And you'd we would wade into it to try to catch fish, and you'd come out and our legs would just be coated in in mud oh glamorous <laughs> yeah, exactly <laughs> but there were fish so there were fish that are adapted to living in that environment and in the spring all of these big uh they're called flannel mouth suckers it's a native arizona fish that can get up to about three feet long all of these flannel mouth suckers would migrate up into this muddy river and spawn and so it was just this incredible priya river is also famous for its slot canyons so there's a section of the river where you can stand and be touching each side of the canyon with one hand you know if you spread out your hands you're touching the canyon walls with each of your hands and then the canyon goes up for seven or eight hundred feet above you and so you just see this little sliver of light above you and you're down deep in this I mean, essentially, what's a, a big crack in the earth. Um, so just an absolutely incredible place. And then as another example of another creek where we work, there's a creek called Havasu Creek on the Havasupai Indian Reservation. And that is this beautiful spring-fed, blue-flowing aquamarine water that comes out of a spring and then flows over waterfall after waterfall after waterfall down into the Colorado River. And you'd think you were in Hawaii. It's so lush and so colorful and beautiful. It's one of the most amazing places I've ever been. Oh, I bet that's gorgeous. I bet you see some amazing fish there too. Yeah. What I learned from this work is that the native fish, we've, you know, built big dams on the Colorado and changed the Colorado so much. There are all different kinds of fish in the Colorado that weren't there historically. So they're invasive fish. And in these small tributaries, you find the fish that were there before because the habitats haven't been altered the way that we've altered the main Colorado. And so all of the tributaries have native fish like uh, flannel mouth sucker, humpback chub, speckled dace, all these cool native fish, unusual looking. Some of them have big humped backs. Some of them have uh, the razor razorback sucker has a really skinny ridge on its back. So they're, they're cool fish. You know, working on the Colorado, I learned about the impacts that dams can have on rivers. I learned about uh, the trouble that a lot of native fish are in, the fact that a lot of native fish are endangered. And I took that experience and went and studied in Thailand for a year because there's the Mekong River in Thailand, which has a thousand different kinds of fish. It's the most productive river in the world. And I spent a year 
studying the Mekong and learning about the fish there. And by coincidence, the Mekong River is also home to more species of giant freshwater fish than any river on earth. And so that was my introduction to these big fish. And then a few years after that, I applied for a research grant from National Geographic. Uh, my research was funded and then one thing led to another and eventually we did the shows. That's so exciting. And, you know, getting funding to do this really interesting and amazing work that just like ties in perfectly to what you'd already been doing. But also like, these giant fish are very attention grabbing too, you know, like they kind of demand your attention because of just how much space they take up in the river. I mean, like I living in Florida, we get some pretty large freshwater fish over here, but still, you know, I think, you know, what you were mentioning, like six plus feet would, is still kind of pushing it for what we typically see around here. Yeah. It's, it's hard to articulate, but when you're in the water with a fish that's as big as you, especially in the ocean, we have a little bit more experience with that. But in freshwater, when you see a fish as big as you in freshwater, it's just not something the human mind can, can, can grasp very easily. And even, you know, I've been working with these fish for a long time, but the fact that there are fish that is as big as us in freshwater is, is extraordinary. I think that what catches me so off guard about it is that, like you mentioned, in the ocean, you kind of expect there to be some big stuff out there, right? You've got like thousands of miles of wide open space. Stuff can get as big as it wants out there. <laughs> you get some like big, big, you know, absolute units out there swimming around in the ocean. And you think in the river, okay, river is kind of narrow, maybe, you know, you, you don't really expect things to be taking up a ton of space out there. And then just, especially because of the murkiness too, like probably not every river is as murky as the ones I'm kind of used to, but like you're looking down into this sort of chocolate milk, like yoo-hoo looking water. You can't see anything. And then all of a sudden there's just like the big giant spiny, like back of a sturgeon or something. You're yeah. like, oh, that's a dinosaur. <laughs> yeah, it's, ex it's exactly like that. I mean, in the Mekong River, yeah, you can have, uh, so giant stingray are one of the world's largest freshwater fish. And you could have a giant stingray seven or eight feet across 14 or 15 feet long, and it could be an inch underwater, and you wouldn't know it was there. So these creatures, I mean, just just as you're saying, these creatures are, are hidden from, from sight, and a lot of these fish occur in remote areas. So we just don't know as much about them as you, as you think we would, given how big they are and how impressive they can be. Seems like they'd be hard to miss, right? <laughs> yeah, but yeah, it does, but they're not. They're very easy to miss. And so that's my real focus started in Thailand in 2005. Fishermen that I'd been working with caught a 646 pound oh, Mekong giant catfish from the Mekong River. Oof. And, you know, so that was an extraordinary, unbelievably large catfish. And when that fish was caught, I asked the question, okay, is this the world's largest freshwater fish? And that question, that's a very simple question, sort of took me on this unexpected adventure <laughs> all over the world trying to gather information about the world's largest freshwater fish. And so it turns out there are 30 or 40 species of freshwater megafish they live on all continents except for Antarctica. It's a diverse assemblage of fish. So you can have fish that people have heard of, like freshwater catfish, 
giant carp. Uh, but then there are also electric eel, you know, freshwater sharks, freshwater stingray, air-breathing arapaima in South America. So it's a very diverse group of fish, and it's been an amazing 20 years trying to study and help protect them. Yeah, you you, you use this word, uh, freshwater megafish. Uh, is this just kind of like a, a category based on just like the size that the fish can get to? Yeah, I mean, different different scientists define that term differently for me because I started with this 646-pound catfish. You started pretty high, huh? That set the bar way up there, <laughs> didn't it? <laughs> well, no, so that, that, that was the record. So I, that was the record. When that fish was caught, that was the record for the world's largest freshwater fish. So I, when I said, you know, I wanted to know, okay, are there other freshwater megafish out there? Are there other contenders for the world's largest fish? Are they all equally threatened? Because the Mekong giant catfish is critically endangered, which means it's at high risk of extinction. So I wanted to gather information about fish like the giant catfish that lived in other parts of the world. So the criteria that I used was 200 pounds or six feet long, which is bigger than your average person. Uh, other people describe, you know, a megafish as being anything over like 60 or 70 pounds. But for the purpose of what I was doing, because I was really trying to focus on the biggest fish, it was freshwater megafish, uh, longer than six feet or weighing more than 200 pounds. Big enough for you to really start sweating when one surfaces near your boat. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of the, you know, the best parts of my job is I get to handle these fish. I get to swim with them. Uh, and yeah, every, the first time I get in the water with a new species, I always take a step back and just watch it for a little while and see how it behaves and make sure that um, it's okay with me being in the water with it. Like, are we cool? Do we need to feel yeah, each other out? Exactly. Like, yeah. what's the what's the protocol here? Are you a hugger or do you prefer handshakes? Yeah. And every <laughs> fish is different. So the sturgeon, you know, sturgeon are amazing survivors. Uh, they get so big and they don't really, this has been my experience at least, when you swim with the sturgeon, they don't mind, they don't pay attention, they don't seem to care that you're there. Uh, another kind of fun experience I had was I was swimming with a giant stingray in an aquarium in Thailand and they let me feed it. So we were feeding Aww. it giant, giant prawns. <laughs> and the way, the way these uh, stingray feed, their mouth is on the underside of their body. And so they use their pectoral fins. I, sh you know, they use their body to cover you. So they cover you kind of like a umbrella or like a blanket. And then they position their mouth. I had the shrimp over my head. And so it would come in with its mouth after it covered me like a blanket and take the shrimp with its mouth. Full on UFO, alien abduction, exactly. tractor beam. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it just, I saw how big its mouth was. So I was pretty sure I wouldn't fit in there. Um, and it was focused on the shrimp. So that was okay. Uh, you were mentioning that, like, the sturgeon aren't bothered by your presence. They probably know. They're like, what are you going to do to me? Nothing. You <laughs> yeah. Nothing to me. Yeah. Well, and these fish, like, they're the biggest animals in the habitats where they occur. And so a lot of smaller animals, you see adaptation to survive, you know, camouflage or poison or whatever adaptation smaller animals may have to escape predators. But these big fish, when they grow to full size, most of them don't have any natural predators. So 
they aren't necessarily afraid of me or of other things. But, you know, again, every fish is different. We study a giant, the world's largest trout in Mongolia. And these, this is a trout that can get up to six feet long or 200 pounds. And those fish, for whatever reason, are very skittish and won't let you get close to them. I, You know what I actually think it is, is that we've found evidence that they at certain times can be aggressive to each other. And so they may think that, you know, they may think that we're another six foot long trout. And so they get out of there. I like the idea that you can just be so big that you have no reason to fear anything anymore. Yeah. Like, I don't even need fear as a feeling. I I can just skip that emotion entirely. I love that. (laughs) I hope that's what's going on. It, it, It does feel that way sometimes. You mentioned that, you know, you see some different adaptations in smaller fish that have to worry about predators than than you would see in these mega fish that don't necessarily have to worry so much about predation, but there are still other ways that they're adapting to their environment. And so that kind of brings us to our first uh, rating that we rate animals on. If this is your first time ever listening to this podcast, we review animals by rating them out of 10. And the first category is effectiveness, which are ways that an animal is adapted physically to survive and thrive in this environment. This could be things built into its body that let it catch their prey, that let them not become prey themselves, things that let them survive in an area that might present challenges to them. What would you give a freshwater megafish out of 10 for effectiveness? Well, fish like sturgeon and alligator gar, they get tens. I mean, look at an alligator gar, alligator gar, armor, scales, these, these diamond shaped rock hard scales that cover its body, bony hard head, omnivorous. So it can eat lots of different things in the river. It's been on earth in similar uh, shape and size for a hundred million years. So alligator gar and sturgeon are the ultimate survivors. They get big. They don't have natural predators. Uh, they get a one though, <laughs> uh, especially sturgeon and fish like sawfish because of what's happened since humans came on the scene. Mm-hmm. So sturgeon have caviar. And so once sturgeon started producing caviar, they became a prized harvest for people. And a, and a sawfish has this amazing saw-like snout that for millions of years it used to whack prey and as an effective weapon to hunt uh, prey that it would eat. But now those saw-like snouts are very easily wrapped in gill nets. So some of these fish that should get a 10 since humans have been on the scene are dropped down very low because Mm. they've become, they, they went from being invincible to being extremely vulnerable. Oh, and that's not their fault. (laughs) No, no, it's definitely, yeah. Okay. So, okay. Yeah. We can't, we shouldn't judge, judge them down, down for that. I mean, these are things that, you know, have been specifically fine tuned to keep this animal surviving and thriving for millions of years. I mean, I've heard these fish referred to as the ultimate survivors because many of them have been around for so long and been so effective. I mean, you think of species like sturgeon alligator gar that were around, you know, during the time of the dinosaurs. They were swimming in rivers and lakes and there were dinosaurs on land. So these fish have been around a very long time. With freshwater bodies like rivers and uh, lakes and things like that, when I think of those, I think of very like murky water that's usually full of like tannins and sediment and things like that. What are the sort of like ecological conditions 
that make it possible for fish to get to these massive sizes. Because we've talked recently about like trophic levels in the ocean and how animals can get to huge size, but just because of like the biomass of food that's a bit available to them. But for like in the river, it's a much smaller scale. So like what sort of conditions in the water like make it possible for fish to reach these large sizes? You've hit on a bunch of the important points. These fish tend to occur in larger rivers. So if you, if you just had to look at a map and guess where these fish occur, you would maybe say the Yangtze River in China, the Mekong, the Murray Darling in Australia, which is Australia's largest river system, mm. the Amazon, the Danube, the Mississippi, the Colorado, the Columbia. The rivers you've heard of. <laughs> yeah, the, river, the, river, the rivers you've heard of because they're big. And by and large, for the most part, that's where these big fish occur. They occur in big rivers and lakes around the world. And so they do, most of them need a lot of space. A lot of them are migratory, so they need to move. They need a lot of food. Uh, and so a lot of food can either mean tropical river systems are very productive. So you find a lot of these big fish in tropical systems. Or in the case of, for example, sturgeon or giant trout, you can have a food source. It might not be a, it's a temperate system, but there's lots of food, salmon and eels and other things that these fish can eat. So lots of space, lots of food, uh, warm water can help because uh, fish grow faster typically in warmer water. Uh, the murkiness, you know, murkiness and productivity can sometimes be related, but, but not necessarily in tropical systems, the Amazon, the Mekong, those rivers are turbid, they are muddy, but these fish are also found, um, you know, in Lake Sturgeon or found in the Great Lakes and Lake Winnebago and um, giant Eurasian trout are found in these beautiful, clear rivers of northern Mongolia. So it's really a diversity of habitats in terms of what they look like, but for the most part, they need space and they need food and they need some kind of refuge or some safe space from from humans. Oh, and also like when they're babies, right? They need like a nursery or not yeah. necessarily. Oh, definitely. Yeah. They need somewhere for the babies to be safe so that they can reach those large sizes. Because even these monster fish, like even these giant uh, behemoth <laughs> fish, they start off little. You know, like you mentioned, they come from caviar. So they start little. <laughs> they start tiny and they need, a surgeon might need 20 years wow. before it can reproduce. And so it has to survive and grow for 20 years. Like I've had guppies before. And if you have, I've had guppies in like a backyard pond. And in a year, you can go from two guppies to thousands. And if those were, you know, if you had two sturgeon, two baby sturgeon, you, that you'd still have those two sturgeon for 20 years before there was any chance that they would reproduce. In fish biologists, we say uh, late age of, of first maturity. So just we, how long does it take for them to grow large enough to be able to reproduce? And if that time is long, that makes a fish more vulnerable. Right. Yeah. And especially like when we've talked about this with animals that have these like long periods of time between generations, like it makes it really difficult for their populations to bounce back if they've been, you know, hit particularly hard by something. You know, it's going to take decades for a population to recover. They're not not a very bouncy sort of like population. It's they, They're kind of living on an extended time frame. Yeah. So I mean, Lake Sturgeon and Lake Winnebago up in northern Wisconsin, They've been well managed by people living in northern Wisconsin. I think the management started in like the 1940s. 
And there's a really healthy population there now. I think it's probably the healthiest population in the world, but it took, you know, how many years? 80 years to get there. Hey there, we are going to take a quick break to hear from a couple of the other shows on the MaxFun Network. When we get back, we're rating ingenuity and aesthetics, so stick around. Hey there, beautiful people. I am your favorite authoress, Trayvell Anderson of We See Each Other, a black trans journey through TV and film. You know this is supposed to be a promo for our show, Fanti, and not your book, right? It's called Multitasking. I can't with you right now. Trayvell and I have an award-winning show called Fanti that we both host, and it's a podcast where we dig into the complex and complicado mm-hmm. conversations about the gray areas in our lives. Perhaps there is a public figure of some sort, and you're like, oh, that person's so smart and so charming, but you're also like, oh, that person gets on my nerves. Okay, okay. You can catch us every week right here on Max Fun or wherever you get your slayworthy audio. And you can watch us on the YouTube every Friday. That's Fanti. F-A-N-T-I. Since we reached our highest milestone during the Max Fun Drive, we are creating a Max Fun Foley library full of sound effects from your favorite hosts. The whole MaxFun community will be able to use it. So, what would you like it to feature? People high-fiving? Walking through mud? Chicken clucking? Jazz kazoo? Head to MaximumFun.org slash Foley. That's MaximumFun.org slash F-O-L-E-Y and submit your ideas. We're excited to make this silly thing together and even more excited to see what you all create with it. And thank you again for a great Max Fun Drive. So since these fish are kind of decked out, these these are kind of like living tanks of fish that are swimming through the water. They're swimming through life unbothered. They don't need to worry about predators, but but they still do have to catch their prey. So the next category that we rate animals on is ingenuity, which are behaviors, things the animal is actually actively doing with their body to solve problems that they face or thrive in their environment. Uh, what would you give freshwater megafish out of 10 for ingenuity? 10 for ingenuity. And I, I'm thinking specifically about electric eel. Oh. So electric eel, they can create a shock up to about 800 volts. So they're creating a shock uh, strong enough, an electric pulse strong enough to stun prey, to ward off predators. And they also use the same ability to communicate with each other. And so they're able to defend themselves, stun and hunt prey without even touching it, communicate with each other, all with tools they, that they have built into their body. So to me, that's, that's absolutely incredible. And I've seen electric eels, you know, hunt in this way. And it's just a very good way to get a, get a meal. It's an interesting way of like using this little funky, quirky superpower that they have built in to like enhance their just sensory perception. Like they've just given themselves like a like a heads up display <laughs> of the world around them by using like their control over electricity. Yeah. And it is it's a, it's a true superpower. And they, they don't just use it for one. You know, they use it to communicate, to hunt, to defend themselves. So they're they have the superpower that they that they really make good use of. And so that's why, you know, 10 for ingenuity for being able to use that superpower in all these amazing ways. I feel like if I was watching like Star Wars or something, and somebody described what was literally just 
a regular electric eel, I would be like, that's not realistic. No, no, they could never do that. You know, like, I feel like if you put a real actual electric eel into like a sci-fi universe, if I didn't already know they were actually like that in real life, I would probably laugh it off at being like, yeah, yeah, electric fish, whatever. (laughs) I would not think that was real. (laughs) It is. It is crazy. Speaking of aliens, so freshwater stingray, the two fish to me that look the most like aliens, although I don't really know what an alien looks like, but uh, the freshwater stingray has this very otherworldly kind of alien look. And then also the goonch catfish. This is a catfish that sort of camouflage mottled brown, green, gray, has cat-like eyes, fleshy uh, barbels, so like fleshy whiskers. They're one of my my favorite looking fish, but they do not look like something that you would expect to find on Earth. Yeah, I actually Googled them while you were describing that. And the first picture that came up was you holding one. Yeah, they're pretty, (laughs) they're pretty crazy looking, aren't they? It's yeah, it is a weird looking fish. That's a real funky one. I gotta say, (laughs) I do like the big fleshy mustache. Yeah, and, and the big teeth. Oh, I didn't notice them until you said that. It's giving Sarlacc. It's it's very, uh, yeah, this is a sci-fi Star Wars monster, I think, for sure. <laughs> okay, so you mentioned the electric eel. And I wanted to just connect a couple of, like, dots that you've mentioned. You mentioned, you know, that typically these tropical rivers have warmer temperatures. So this is, like, warmer water. A long time ago, when we were talking about ice fish that live in the southern sea around Antarctica, we talked about how water holds more oxygen the colder it is. So the warmer the water, the less oxygen is like dissolved and it's like concentrated in the water. Yeah. And we've also talked about how a lot of these freshwater fish, especially when they live in these warm tropical rivers, have to breathe air because there's not enough oxygen in the water. So they have to come up for air. And you did mention these, you know, that uh, arapaima have to come up to the water to breathe. Yeah. Have you ever seen them do that? Oh, like- they, yeah. They do it every minute. So that that's actually how, <laughs> I mean, that's how you count them. Really? When you do surveys, you count how many fish you see come up to, to breathe. Um, and so that's yeah. a, that's a way that they're, that surveys are done. That's something that fishermen take advantage of because the fish, they know the fish have to come up to breathe. Um, and so they, there's a, spearing harvest for them but it's an adaptation to low oxygen water and a lot of these fish in the amazon fish in the mekong they get in these floodplain habitats and seasonally the water goes way up and way down and so in the dry season in some of these backwaters the oxygen content of the water can really drop and the adaptation to breathe air allows them to survive in low oxygen environments so it's a cool adaptation, and it it's a real advantage uh, for them to be able to stay in those habitats when other animals and fish have to move out. Yeah, I think commonly people, especially kids, like to ask as like a joke question. They'll be like, "Can you drown a fish?" It's like, well, some of them can, yeah, <laughs> if they don't come up to breathe. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we learned. So when I was fishing for them, we were told by the local people that we were fishing with, you know, if you when you catch one. Don't just release it immediately. We are usually doing catch and release. And so we're catching the fish. We'll get, we'll tag them. We'll get some data on them and then we'll release them back into the river. And with the arapaima, you need to hold onto it until it can swim on its own. Fish will get tired out when they get caught. So until it gets its strength back and can swim on its own, just need to hold it and keep it 
uh, at the water surface so it can breathe. Because wow. if you let it go too early and it doesn't have its strength back, it could potentially drown, which is, oh. yeah. I mean, it's sad, but it's also just not something that you would normally think about with a fish. The assumption is that fish can breathe air through their gills, but the aeropyma, um, that, that's apparently a problem. And so we just have, we would keep them, you know, you can watch them, you see them start to move their body. They start to shake their head. They start to look a little like they're in a bad mood. And that's, <laughs> that's the right time to, to let them go. We touched a little bit on what you think is the coolest looking fish, the, the goonch catfish. And that kind of leads us to our final category that we rate animals on, which is aesthetics. How nice is this animal to look at? You can pick your favorite if you want. You could just do it based on whichever, whichever one you think is the coolest. Uh, but what do you give freshwater megafish out of 10 for aesthetics? 10 out of 10. And I'm thinking about the goonch. I'm also thinking about the giant Eurasian trout. The giant Eurasian trout... Mm is a beautiful trout. It has green body with dark black spots, a coppery red tail. It's a beautiful fish that occurs in a wonderful part of the world, northern Mongolia, sort of kind of reminiscent of of Montana with these broad green river valleys and larch-covered mountains. So it's a beautiful fish that occurs in a beautiful area. I do have to say that some people have come up to me after my talks and said, Zeb, these are the ugliest fish we have ever Aww, seen. That's not necessary. <laughs> no, it's not. It's not necessary. Right in front of I, don't, the fish. <laughs> I don't appreciate it, but I do. I have heard that many times. The Mekong giant catfish and the Chinese paddlefish have what looks like a frown, just their natural, <laughs> their natural mouth shape looks very, very frowny. And so I rate 10 out of 10, but I'm not sure everyone would agree, <laughs> agree with me. My personal favorite, I think, is is the Arapaima. I think they have a puppy dog face. Like you said, like a big giant frown. <laughs> their lower lip kind of comes sticks out over their uh, upper lip and they have big eyes. It's a little pout. I might be biased because I caught one in the video game uh, Animal Crossing New Horizons. You can catch them in that game. And I caught one and put it in my museum in the game. And it is beautiful. So I think I might be a little biased because of that. But that was how I learned what that they existed and what they are. So I count that. <laughs> do you, do you... It's a gorgeous fish. <laughs> So you're 10 out of 10 as well? I For sure, for sure. And freshwater fish often don't get the credit because they get overshadowed by marine fish. Like there's a, a lot visually going on with, with marine fish, especially reef fishes and stuff. But then freshwater fish get overshadowed by them and there's some really gorgeous ones. Yes, I agree. Freshwater fish, they're, it's a shame that they're harder to appreciate. They're harder to find. They're harder to see. I mean, I think scuba diving did wonders for people's appreciation of ocean life, and mm -hmm. we don't really have the equivalent in freshwater. But what we know, like as scientists, we know that there's just as much life and diversity and beauty and complexity in freshwater systems as there is in marine marine systems, but it's just much harder to study and appreciate. I feel that. Do you have uh, anything that you can leave people that are listening that are like, you know, feeling inspired to care for their own local freshwater ecosystems or do something to, to help protect them? Like, do you have any little like nuggets of advice for the typical everyday person who might be listening and feel inspired to help them out? You know, these are extraordinary creatures and they need our help. And they basically what they need are healthy, 
rivers and lakes. So they need our help to manage rivers and lakes to keep them, you know, free of pollution, keep them clean, keep them flowing. And then, you know, some of the truly rare fish when they're caught, practicing catch and release can really help. Uh, when I was young, I, I volunteered at an aquarium, you know, mm -hmm. something like that can, can really help. So go out, you know, learn as much as you can about these amazing fish and then do what you can to help keep rivers and lakes clean and free flowing, good habitat, not only for these big fish, but also for us. Yeah, for sure. So anybody that's listening that is like, oh, I think these giant freshwater fish are really, really cool. Could you let folks listening know uh, a little bit more about your book? The book is called Chasing Giants in Search of the World's Largest Freshwater Fish. And I uh, co-authored it with a writer from National Geographic named Stefan Lovgren. So if people go onto Google and title Chasing Giants, Zeb Hogan, the book will pop up and it's available for purchase uh, on Amazon right now. Uh, and it's a, it, it took 10 years to write. It was a, they, we didn't know it was going to take 10 years, but it took, it took a long time to write. And we start actually in the Mekong with this, the catch of this 646 pound giant catfish and ask this basic question, is this catfish the world's largest freshwater fish? And then the book spans the entire, you know, globe. We travel around learning about big fish on every continent. Uh, learning about, you know, their evolution. What, where do these fish come from? How do they survive? How many of them are, are there out there? And then we learn about the threats that they face. Chinese paddlefish, for example, is the, the, for, unfortunately, the first one of these fish that has been declared extinct. And so obviously oh. we want to stop that from happening with these other fish. And so toward the end of the book, we talk about solutions. What's being done to help protect these fish? Where are the bright spots? And, you know, where are we going to end up in the future? So it's a, it's a fun book, it spans uh, decades of learning and working with local communities and working with local scientists to learn about extraordinary freshwater megafish. Is there anywhere else on the internet that you'd like people to follow along with your work? Yeah. So, you know, I think the book is a great place to start. Uh, recently, I've been doing a lot of work in Southeast Asia, and I manage a project called Wonders of the Mekong. And we're very active on Facebook, on social media. And so to learn about sort of more of my specific work right now on Wonders of the Mekong, check us out on Facebook or Instagram. And then definitely, if people are interested in learning more, the book is a wonderful place to start. And i really recommend it to everybody. I'll have links to everything in the episode description. So you can click through, follow on Facebook and Instagram and check out the book and, and learn even more about freshwater megafish. Because with a name like megafish, right? Like, how can you not? Like, that begs to be learned about. It has been a delight learning about our freshwater friends with you. We will catch you later. Thank you so much for joining us, Zeb. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Thank you all so much for listening today. If you liked what you heard, I hope you leave behind some kind words for us in a good review on your podcast app of choice, like Philly Ford, who said on Apple Podcasts, quote, nice mix of genuine info and real chuckles, not fake laughter. Only 100% natural laughter here, folks. If you want to hang out with us online, we're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Discord. Links to everything will be in the episode description. You can even send me an email at ellen at justthezooofus.com if you have a cool animal you'd like to hear us talk about on the show. 
We'd like to thank Maximum Fun for having us on their network alongside the other wonderful shows on the network, like the ones you heard promos for earlier today. You can check those out and learn more about the network and how you can be a part of supporting our show over at MaximumFun.org. Finally, we would like to thank Louis Zong for our theme music. That's all for today. See you next week. Thanks. Bye. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.